Good stuff. And as we come to God's word, why don't we uh, just open with a word of prayer today. Lord, we just come before you and uh, we bring our hearts towards you, Lord. We present them. We know, Father, that you describe the heart as like soil and your word like seed that is planted into the heart and the condition of the heart matters. The condition of the soil matters for the seed of the word. And so, Lord, we, we ask you that you'd give us soft hearts this morning. We ask, Lord, that they would be pliable, that they would be open and receptive to the word of God. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would change our hearts today and that you would change the condition of this soil so that your word would grow and produce much fruit and And so, Lord, as uh, we go through these passages this morning, we ask your blessing upon them, Lord. I pray for uh, your anointing, for your power, Lord, for uh, the leading of your spirit, that you would just uh, take the word of God and make it real and alive to each one of us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. We're in Exodus chapter 6 and 7. Uh, this morning, and if you're visiting here with us, we've been just uh, going through this journey through uh, the book of Exodus, and we're not too uh, far into it. Exodus tells the story of the Israelites who were in uh, slavery in the land of Egypt under the bondage of Pharaoh. There was some two to three million of them, and God began to remember his covenant and the promises that he had made to the forefather, their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he raised up a deliverer named Moses. And Moses has been in this process of being developed. And he's been sent, as we saw last week. He went and he had his very first encounter uh, with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and uh, delivered that message, let my people go. Now, any sense for Moses that this, that this process was going to be uh, a cakewalk was crushed after his first encounter with Pharaoh? We saw that in Exodus chapter 5. God called his people to worship, and as, as Moses delivered that message to Pharaoh, Pharaoh quickly asserted his authority, and he put the heavy hand of oppression upon the people of Israel. And in doing so, he, he stopped the supply of straw for them in their brick-making process. And, although, and, and at the same time, he didn't lower the quota of work that he expected. He said, now you go and you find your own straw and your own stubble. And the workload will remain the same. And so he just, he added to their oppression. He added to the bondage of their slavery. And we saw in Exodus chapter 5 that when that happened, the foremen of the people of Israel went to Pharaoh to request um, some relief, but Pharaoh would have no such uh, consideration of any, any plan like that. Moses, on the other hand, when this began to happen and the people began to complain to him, uh, did what we should do. He turned to the Lord in prayer, began to pour out his heart to God. And he says, we actually could pick this up at the end of chapter five in verse 22. It says, then the Lord turned, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me for since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Look, turning to God in prayer is always the right response to whatever situation you face in life. 
Things going good, things going bad, facing resistance, uh, feeling pressure from Satan, workload heavy, whatever it is, the right decision is always to turn to the Lord in prayer. Now, um, we're going to kind of see here that it was never God's plan to go halfway with this act of deliverance for the people of Israel. By the time he is going to accomplish his purposes for them, Pharaoh is going to uh, drive them out of the land. Let's check out verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out with a strong for with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. Look, as the Lord begins to work this act of deliverance this morning, we're going to start to get into the, the first plague of 10 plagues that came upon the people of Israel. We're going to see that God is beginning to, he's going to begin to make a marked difference between those who belong to him and those who do not belong to him. There's going to be no confusion. And in that process, God is going to cause Pharaoh to just force the people of God right out of Egypt and the Lord will deliver them into uh, the promised land. Now we, now we read in verse 2, it says this. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. This is the answer to prayer here. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they live as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. The Lord says to Moses, as Moses begins to pray, I am the Lord. We've been seeing this title of the Lord throughout the book of Exodus. It's the name of God, Lord it's that name Yahweh. Sometimes we uh, say Jehovah. Now there's something that's lost in translation to English in this whole discussion that's happening between uh, Moses and the Lord as the Lord begins to answer his prayer. Because we read this and we think, you know, we're left with this sense that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not know God as Yahweh. That is not what the text is saying. Uh, that, that's a thing that's lost in translation. God was known to them by the divine name Yahweh, but God made himself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by his name El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. Um, but the name Yahweh is seen all the way back to the early beginnings of the book of Genesis. In fact, the, you, you could even read it in Genesis chapter 4. Eve called God Yahweh when she gave birth to her son. So what this means is, is not that, you know, um, they didn't know the name of God. It means that God had not revealed the nature and the meaning of Yahweh. When they called him Yahweh, there was, there was a mystery involved for them in that. And so in regards to um, the promises that Abraham was given, well, actually, let me back up here for a second. When God established his covenant with Abraham, he did so on this basis. He said, I'm El Shaddai. I'm God Almighty. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so on the basis of that name, El Shaddai, on the basis of that title, God Almighty, 
Abraham entered into a covenant relationship with God. And the, the covenant promises that Abraham was given, except for the fact that he got to see the birth of his son Isaac, he never saw the promises fulfilled in his lifetime. He looked forward in faith. He clung to the nature and the identity of God as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Although I don't see these things, I'm, I'm holding to that character, God, and I'm going to trust you to fulfill your promises that you've given to me. And Isaac and Jacob did the same thing. To them, God was revealed as El Shaddai, and they, they hung on to that title, God Almighty, for him to fulfill his word. Now to Moses... God came on the scene, as we saw in Exodus chapter 3, Moses met the Lord in that burning bush encounter. And Moses, the Lord came to Moses and he said, I established a covenant with Abraham as El Shaddai, God Almighty. I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to reveal myself to you as Yahweh, the God who will fulfill covenant promises. Same God, revealing another part of his nature. I'm now going to fulfill those promises. So as El Shaddai, God Almighty established the covenant relationship, but as Yahweh, I am that I am, the Lord, he said, I'll fulfill the covenant promises made to Israel. Now check out verse 4. He said, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, uh, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. See, here's the thing about the God that we serve, and the God who is being revealed uh, to Moses and to the people of Israel. He's a covenant-making and keeping God. He said, I promise you the land of Canaan, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. I promise to lead you out of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery, and bring you into this land that is a promised land for you. I'm going to do it. He's a covenant-making and keeping God. And in these last days, his word tells us that he's established a new covenant with his people by the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of sin and the free gift of eternal life. And God has uh, revealed... God revealed himself to us by a name that he took when he was born of a virgin. He sent an angel to Joseph and he said to Joseph, when the child is born, when the male child is born, you shall give him the name Jesus, Yehoshua, the, the, the Hebrew name that means the Lord is salvation because he will save his people from their sins. He's a covenant making and keeping God. Now, as I read these next few verses, I, I, I want you to pay attention to the intentions of the Lord as he begins to work the fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham. Verse 6 says this. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. 
I am the Lord. I love those verses. Those are powerful verses sandwiched between that statement where God says, I am the Lord. He says it twice. Sandwiched in the middle of that, he gives seven statements regarding himself, regarding his nature, regarding his intentions towards his people and his intentions towards fulfilling his covenant. The first statement is this. He says, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. See, that's a promise of salvation. I will save you. You know that Jesus also made seven statements regarding his name and his nature and his character. And they reflect all the same values that God revealed in his nature as Yahweh. See, see Yahweh said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Salvation. Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 9, I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Promise of salvation. So Yahweh told Moses, I will deliver you from slavery. I'll liberate you. I will set you free. And Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. I will set you free from sin and death was the promise of Jesus. A promise of liberation. See, Yahweh said, I will redeem you with my outstretched arm. A a promise of redemption. And Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. I will redeem you. Yahweh said, I will take you to be my people. Adoption. You'll be my family. Jesus said this, I'm the true vine and you're the branches grafted into me. Adoption. Abide in me and I in you. Yahweh said, I will be your God and you shall know the Lord. Revelation. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Come to me and you'll never walk in darkness. Revelation. Yahweh said, I will bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham. I'll give your life direction. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, I I will give your life direction. Yahweh said, I I will give you the land as a possession. I I will provide for you. I will give you provision. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever hunger again. Provision. And, And as I think about that, seven statements by Yahweh... Seven statements by Jesus, it, it, it kind of blows me away. You know, Isaiah actually gives seven statements regarding the Holy Spirit too. The seven characteristics of the nature of the Spirit. Revelation calls him the sevenfold Spirit. Seven titles reflecting his perfect nature. And, and by his name Yahweh, the Lord made known to Moses and to the people of Israel his perfect intention to lead Israel um, in a work of salvation out of the land of Egypt and the slavery and the bondage of, of their life there to the promised land. Jesus as well made those seven I am statements regarding his name and nature, but for you and I, Those statements are not in regards to his fulfilling a covenant already established like we read from Genesis and Exodus. See, as El Shaddai, he established a covenant with Abraham. As Yahweh, he said, I'll fulfill the covenant 
to Abraham. But the the seven statements of Jesus, the seven I am statements of Jesus tell us something different. They tell us about the nature of who he is. They tell us about his intentions towards us. And his intentions are this. These are the intentions of God towards you. If you ever wondered, what does God desire for me? What what does he want from my life? Are his thoughts good towards me? These are the intentions of Jesus towards you. Salvation, liberation, redemption, adoption, revelation, direction, and provision. See, seven titles declaring his perfect intentions towards you. So Yahweh said to Israel, I will. But to us, Jesus says, I am. I am. And the difference is this. I will expresses, in a future sense, that which God is going to do for Israel. I am, first person singular, expresses an invitation from Jesus. See, Jesus is inviting you into relationship with himself. Jesus is saying, I invite you to experience the reality of who I am. And this is who I am. Salvation, liberation, redemption, adoption, revelation, direction, provision. I counted wrong there. (laughs) The perfect sevenfold nature of the Son of God. See, I will, as God was speaking to Moses, puts the emphasis on God to do it. But I am, the emphasis put on Jesus, invites you to a relational reality with the living God. See, those seven I am statements invite you to respond to Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches us that the proper way to respond to Jesus is this. You repent, you turn from sin, and in faith, you turn to Jesus. And you come to know uh, the reality of his salvation, his liberation, his redemption, his adoption, his revelation, his direction, and his provision. See, God is good. God is good. And the intentions of God towards you are good. And as God begins to speak, you know, Moses just begins to pour out his heart to God. And God says, I am the Lord. And I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He begins to reveal what he is going to do. And then he sandwiches it with his name again. I am the Lord. And so verse 9 tells us that Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. He went and he gave them that very message. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Somewhat amazingly, although this revelation of God, if you take time to meditate on it and think upon it, it's it's mind-blowing. The people did not listen. And there was two things that stopped them that affected their ability to hear with faith. So we're circling in there. Their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. The word broken actually can be translated impatient. That they were impatient in spirit. Under, under the bondage of slavery, waiting to be delivered, they wanted immediacy from God. And their impatience stopped their ability for, him to hear, for them to hear. Or 
as it says, they were broken. They were crushed. They were living under the realities of a harsh slavery. And for me, a, a few thoughts come to mind. You know, first of all, the broken spirit and the harsh uh, slavery that the people were experiencing did not relieve Moses of the mandate to proclaim. Uh, whether you meet belief or whether you meet unbelief, the mandate to proclaim God's word is the same. And, and as we proclaim Jesus, we cannot, control the, we cannot control the condition of the soil to which the seed of the word lands upon. Uh, the only thing we can control is this, our faithfulness to proclaim the living God whose desire is salvation for people. All we can do is be faithful to proclaim the truth of God's word. And this morning, you know, I, I imagine there's people here that are feeling broken in spirit. I imagine that maybe life has crushed your spirit. Your hope has been crushed. Maybe slavery, slavery to sin has dealt you some harsh realities this week. That sin, that taskmaster has been brutal with you. And those things, broken spirit and, and the harshness of slavery affect your ability to hear the word of God with faith and receive that which is being said to you. And the people, were unable, they were unable to hear these amazing promises that were being given to them from God because of these realities in their life. They, they were not hearing with ears of faith. In verse 10 we read, So the Lord said to Moses, Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold. I, I love this. There it is again. This is Moses. Behold. And that means think about it. God, you better think about this. I don't know, God, if you really thought this through. Do you understand who you're sending into this? He, he, he says, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Remember that word? Yeah, behold just means this. Think about it, God. You don't have this plan thought through. As much as you want me to go in and deliver the message, you haven't thought this through because the people of Israel, I went to them. I told them that incredible revelation and they didn't listen to me. Why now would the experience be any different when I go to Pharaoh? Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. And Moses uh, puts the deciding factor on whether the whether or not the people would listen to him on the skill of his own lips. He says, they didn't listen because I don't know how to talk. I'm not a good talker. And I go to before Pharaoh and I don't know how to talk. Pharaoh's not going to listen to me either. Now as we read this story, I mean, we, we can zoom out. We have the perspective and the ability to just uh, take the lens and zoom out. And we understand that God is weaving many pieces together in this story. There's many things he is seeking to accomplish and do. He's working a plan for Israel. He's working a plan for Egypt. He's fulfilling a covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's developing Moses as a leader. He's giving opportunity for Pharaoh to respond to the word of God before the judgment of God comes upon the land of Egypt. Uh, the skill of Moses' lips is really no concern to God. The Lord already told him, who made your mouth? Who put the word of God in your mouth? Don't be worried about the skill of your lips. See, what Moses needed to be was faithful to the role God had placed him in. 
And you know, it's the same for you and I. We so often worry about the skill of our, well, I don't know. I don't know enough. I'm not a good talker. I can't talk to people. I can't tell. God's not worried about the skill of your lips. You be faithful to what he's called you to speak and to say and to do. And Moses simply needed to be faithful in the role that God had placed him. See, just like it's the same for you and I, just like God was working this many-layered story for the people of Israel and for his own glory and for his own work of salvation and for his great name, God is working a great story of redemption called salvation in the world today. And it's so layered. It involves men and women. It involves uh, young and old. It involves towns and cities and nations and countries and continents and kings and queens and prime ministers and presidents and pharaohs and slaves and history and present and future. And, and the man or woman that God will use is one who just says, okay, I'll be faithful and I'll do what you say. I'll be obedient. I'll be the one who says, when you say, whom shall I send? I'll say, send me. When you say go, I will go. When you say do it, I will do it. And if this story of Exodus teaches us anything about our relationship with God, it's this. If God says it, just do it. If God says it, just do it. You know, we, we get stuck as human beings in this place where we, we want comprehension first. We say, God, you give me comprehension, and then I'll act in obedience. God says, no, you act in obedience, and I'll bring comprehension. We say, God, uh, I want understanding then, and then I'll act in faith. God says, no, no, no. You respond to me in faith, and I will bring understanding. See, God is looking for people that will be obedient. We read in verse 13 to his word. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel. He doesn't, he doesn't lift the mandate. Quit talking to me about your lips, Moses. <laughs> Go do the job. He gives them a charge about the people of Israel and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now we come to verse 14, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. Now I'm just going to spare you me trying to read through this and pronounce all these different names and the whole story, but I think um, maybe what we'll do is we'll just kind of cruise through and I'll point some highlights out, okay? Is that cool? It's good to skip the genealogy, I think. Right on, we read in verse 14. These are the heads of the fathers of their houses. And what he does here is he lists off the first three sons of Abraham. We see in chapter verse 14, the sons of Reuben. He's the firstborn of Israel. We see in 15, the sons of Simeon. He's the secondborn uh, of Jacob, Israel. And then in verse 16, there are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershom, Kohath, Moriah, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. We're about to see here that Moses and Aaron were born of Levi's line. And why this matters is this, is because Levi, the tribe of Levi, as we know, were chosen to be special representatives amongst the nation of Israel for the people of God. It hasn't yet happened in the story. But Gershon, Kohath, and Moriah, the three tribes within the clan of Levi, 
become the three clans which are given special jobs in regards to the tabernacle or the temple. Moses falls in and Aaron fall into one of those lines. It says in verse 18, the sons of Kohath, Amram, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. Then verse 20, Amram took a wife, Jochebed, his father's sister. It's kind of weird. He married his aunt. Don't recommend that. She bore him, Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. So, so here we see Moses and Aaron are born of the line of Levi, Kohath, Amram. The years are listed. What were they? Whatever, 130, 133, 137. Moses is the great-grandson of Levi. The grandson of Kohath, the son of Amram. Moses has got this brother, Aaron, and we're going to get some specifics about Aaron here in verse 23. It says, Aaron took a wife, Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. Why does this matter? Because Aaron is going to become the high priest. He's going to become the representative, and through his line, will be the line of the high priest. We know that his first sons, Nadab and Abihu, went into the tabernacle of the Lord. We're going to see this happen later in the book. And Nadab and Abihu did something that was not authorized. They brought fire into the presence of God. And God said, this is a holy place. And he struck them down dead. And so the line of the high priesthood went from Aaron to Eliezer the thirdborn of Aaron. It says in verse 25, Eliezer, Aaron's son, took a wife from one of the daughters of Pudiel, and she bore him Phineas. Phineas, major player in the Old Testament, is the high priest. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levite clans. Jump up to verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. It matters to the Lord. You say, oh, seriously, man, genealogies? How many? Ge this week I was in First Chronicles in my Bible. Oh. You know, it's like killer. First six, seven chapters, it's just names, genealogies. We say, God, what's with all the genealogies in the Bible? Look at people matter to God. You matter to God. I matter to God. And, and for that reason, we should be thankful that the Lord keeps track. He keeps track. He knows your name. And, and more striking to my heart that he knows my name, he knows the name of my children. That, that matters to me. I belong to Jesus. I want my children to belong to Jesus. Uh, my ancestors who served Jesus wanted me to belong to Jesus. It matters to God. And God desired to clearly identify the family line of Moses and Aaron be because it matters. It matters in his story and it matters in the future of what God is going to do. Now in verse 28, it says on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. Here it is again. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, 
Think about this, Lord. I'm going to give you one last chance, God. You need to think about this. Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, this is seven times Moses has sought to negotiate with the Lord since uh, his burning bush encounter. And I point that out because seven in the Bible is a number of perfection. We see that as God spoke about his character and his name and he revealed himself, I'm the Lord, he gave seven I will statements. He's saying, this is the perfection of who I am. When Jesus spoke and gave his seven I am statement, he said, this is the perfection of who I am as God. And I guess you, you might think that giving seven excuses to God, Moses brought the perfect negotiation to God, but wrong. He didn't win the negotiation because God wins all the time. He wins every time. I, I, I told you that last week. I mean, we, we spend so much of our lives negotiating with God when God just says, look, just be obedient, man. I said it. Do it. Because we can arm wrestle all day long here, and I'm going to win. I'm going to win. Do what I'm telling you to do. We're not negotiating. I'm going to win. Now we come to chapter 7. It says this. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And you shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. Now th this is a really good definition for us for understanding what a prophet is. What's a prophet? We wonder, oh, what is a prophet? Are there prophets today? All, all these kind of questions we have. Look, Aaron is going to be the spokesman for Moses. Aaron was called, his mandate was to be a prophet. Now a prophet is one who speaks for God. One who comes from the presence of God and has a message from God to the people of God. In fact, you could say this. A prophet is the exact opposite of a priest. A priest does this. A priest represents people to God. A priest comes from the people and goes to God and mediates on behalf of the people to God. A prophet does the exact opposite. A prophet comes from the presence of God to the people. He's a, he's a deliverer of a, of a message. Now, the reason why this makes sense that God says to Moses, I'm going to make you like God before Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet, is this, is that uh, as being polytheistic, worshiping and serving many, many myriads of God, pharaohs and the Egyptians were, pharaoh who believed himself to be a god, were extremely superstitious. They were extremely pagan. You know, the only reason why, as we go through this story, pharaoh doesn't kill Moses is because he believes him to be a god. As he works these miracles and performs these acts and Moses speaks on his half, behalf. And so, you know, Pharaoh is just so superstitious that in his mind, Moses and Aaron are absolute untouchables. In verse 3 we read, chapter 7. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. 
Moses and Aaron did so. They did, they did just as the Lord commanded them. That's what the Lord wanted from them, obedience. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. It's crazy when you think about it. These guys are old, man. 80 years old. But you know, no offense, Nancy. We love you. I, I see her shaking over there, giggling in her seat. 80s, man. They're in their 80s. But you know that the Bible says when Moses was 120, you know, Brian Colkman's wearing glasses this morning because he's getting old. You know, Ron Paskowitz is telling me about his fading vision. The Bible says when Moses was 120, there was nothing wrong with his eyes. That his strength was perfect. That he could keep going. Uh, amazing. 80 years old. And God is beginning to use them in a, in a fresh way. Read in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take, the staff, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret acts, arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But check this out. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. Isn't that cool? I mean, that is awesome. You got, I mean, you just got to love this. As you read this, how the Bible takes us into the throne room of Egypt, we just get to be like flies on the wall and see what's going on and how the whole scene is working. We saw that in Exodus chapter 3, the Lord gave this Moses to miracle. He said, what's in your hand? Throw it down before me. I'm going to turn it into a miracle. You, you think that this is a, a tool which represents you know, the boredom of your life and the failure of your life and it's become such a part of you that you forgot to even lay this thing down as you bow in my presence. Throw it down before me. I'm going to take it and I'm going to make something beautiful out of it. You're going to use this as a sign of my work. And so the Lord gave Moses the staff that turned to a stake uh, to, at the burning bush encounter to be this sign before Pharaoh. Now you have to know this as we read this. This is a true power encounter. This is, this is the demonic versus the work of God. This is evil and good. This is not fooling around. This is not like a, a sweet little story. This is Pharaoh bringing sorcerers. Men that are involved in relying on demonic powers, worshiping false gods, and this is a true power encounter between uh, the prophets of God and representatives of Satan. And, you know, let my people go. Like, yeah, right, is Pharaoh. You want me to hand over my workforce you want me to let go of my slaveries, millions of them? I'm God. Who do you think you're talking to, Moses? Who do you think you're talking to, Aaron? I'm not going to be tricked by your little sleight of hand move. That's Pharaoh, okay? And he wants to know, is this sleight of hand? Is this the, the trick of a gimmick or game? 
Or what is it? When Aaron drops the staff and it becomes a snake, Pharaoh wants to know, am I dealing with true power? Or are you just a cheap musician, a magician who I need to kick out of my presence? And so Pharaoh calls in his sorcerers. And we don't know how many there were, you know. Say, oh, there was two. Maybe there was 10. <laughs> Maybe there was 30. We don't know. Uh, I, I mean, the New Testament tells us at least the names of the two chiefs, Jans and Jamres. But there was probably many magicians and, and sorcerers. And what happens is, is that the sorcerers replicate the miracle. They too toss their staffs to the ground. This is crazy, man. And their sticks of wood also turn into serpents. See, this is, this, like I said, it's a true power encounter between God and the devil, between those who represent the Lord and those who do not. And this is a true demonstration of power on the part of, of Satan. You know, um, Satan counterfeits. He, he works miracles. You know, I, I would... I would warn you, you never judge a ministry or a church or some teacher by their ability to perform miracles. Satan performs miracles. He uses miracles to deceive people to thinking that they've got the genuine. He's counterfeit, man. He's an angel of light. And so as God's people, I mean, praise God when God works miracles in our midst. He does. We desire them. We want to experience them. But they, miracles are not the means by which we judge uh, whether something is true or good. It's the word of God. We, we bring it under the authority of the word of God. We say, what are they teaching about Jesus? Then we judge it. See, when the Lord, you know, gives, considering that this is a power encounter between good and evil, when the Lord meets Moses at Sinai, as we're going to see later in this book, he says to Moses, he says, you give the people of Israel this instruction. When they get to Canaan, when they get to Canaan and they enter that land, they are not to be like the people of that land. They are to stay away from that which is evil. And, and people of God, children of the light, children of the kingdom, it's the same for you. You are not to be like the people of the land. You're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You know, Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh and they represented that which was true and that which is righteous and that which is good. And you represent the king of heaven, that which is true and righteous and good. And the crazy thing was that in the presence of Moses and Aaron, as they performed this miracle, Satan replicated the miracle. It wasn't, it wasn't make-believe. This was a true power encounter. And the Bible actually tells us that in the last days in particular, Revelation talks lots about this, that Satan will be at work upon the earth and he will perform many miracles. And many people will be deceived and they, they will turn to follow his false teachers and the Antichrist and the Antichrist. See, Satan empowers his followers to perform miracles just like God empowers us to be representatives of the, that which is righteous and good. And, and so I, I would say this, people of God, there's true power, there's true good, 
and there's true evil. And you're not to be like the people of the land. You know, Ouija boards, tarot cards, channeling, consulting the dead, magic, white or black, going to see the shaman, uh, spirit guides. You're not to be like the people of the land. You serve that which is righteous and good and holy, the king of heaven. And Satan replicates. See, those things, all those things that I just listed off are true and they are real and they are true power encounters, but behind them is not the power of God. It's the work of Satan and his power. You know, I'd even say drugs, <laughs> obviously, Smoke and weed, which is the thing on the Sunshine Coast. Look, the Bible associates drug abuse with witchcraft. Did you know that? The Bible puts those two together, so they're one and the same. It's witchcraft. And you'll say, well, it's natural. Yeah, well, sore prickles. I don't roll in those, <laughs> you know. The Bible says this. You, you don't use substance to renew your mind. You'd be renewed in your, you don't use substance to escape reality. You come to me. I am the Lord. Turn to me. You need a break from reality? Then grab your Bible and go walk in the woods. You need a break from reality? Go to the beach and observe the beauty of God's creation and spend time in the Psalms. I'll tell you what, God will give you a break from reality. And he'll make his peace known to you. And he'll give you a peace that passes understanding. It will guard your mind and it will guard your heart and it'll change your life. Be renewed by the transforming of your mind. Look, we're not involved in a game. We need to see that as we read this story. And when you, you, you are called to be different. And when you open yourself up uh, to that which is evil, it's not make-believe, man. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's spiritually dangerous for the people of God. And the thing is, as you read this story, you know, Satan doesn't, he doesn't fix anything here. The sorcerers come in and they don't make the story better. You know, they don't like stop Moses' staff, the serpent, from doing something. You know, he doesn't turn Moses' snake into the staff. He replicates, he just replicates the miracle. He says, I got power too. But the amazing thing is, Aaron's serpent just begins to cruise around and swallow those serpents up. Because the power of God is greater than the power of the devil. And I just, you know, I just wish that I could have been in that room. Just see the, the saucer eyes of those sorcerers. The saucer eyes of Pharaoh as they came to understand that, that they were dealing with true power. That this was not gimmick. That this was not game. That this was not sleight of hand. But this was the power of God. But it says in verse 13... Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Now, you know, we, we read this story. We're going to see this many times. God is, Moses is going to record for us about the condition of Pharaoh's heart, and he's going to talk about Pharaoh hardening his heart. He's going to talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And you know, we read this story and we're tempted to think this. We're, we're tempted to think, oh, Pharaoh, he's such a good guy. 
You know, if God just wouldn't harden his heart, he would turn in repentance and the whole thing would be good and all this stuff. But look at nothing could be further from the truth. This guy's proclaimed himself to be God. He's evil, man. He is about oppression of people. He is about slavery. He is an evil, evil man who the world exists for him. And he's not out to serve anybody but himself. And so we might be, you know, tempted to read this story and think, he really wants to believe, you know, he really does, if God would just let him believe. No, not the case. Nothing could be further from the truth. Pharaoh's not the good guy done in by a bad God. That's not the deal here. The Lord is being very patient with him. And he is being given many, many chances to respond to the Lord, to respond to the word of the Lord. And you know, there just comes this point that as people refuse the Lord, they just refuse, they dull their heart, they set in their stubborn ways, they say, God, I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to you. And they refuse God. And they harden their hearts to God that God finally just says, look, that's, we're cool. I'll give you over to that what you want. I'll give you over. See, Romans chapter one is a great study of that where the Lord says, they did this, they did this, and I, okay, I gave them over. And they did this, and they did this, and I gave them over. And they did this, and they did this, and I gave them over. And that's the picture here with Pharaoh. He's resisting God, and God says, okay, have it your way. Okay, have it your way. See, Pharaoh will harden his heart against God, and God will give him over to the hardness of that heart. And it's a good warning to us. You know, be careful to obey. Don't hesitate to do what God asks of you. Just do it. I don't know about you, but I, I live in this tension all the time. I'm, I'm like negotiating with God always. No, God, no, 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 no. Behold, you, don't, you haven't thought this out. You, you don't know. Or just stop, stop negotiating with the Lord and just do what he asks. And we read to verse 15. Lord instructs Moses. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he's going out to the water, this is the, fir the first of uh, ten plagues. Really, I would say nine plagues. They're broken into three divisions of three. Three, 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 and a tenth one. The Passover is the last one. Verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. He's going out to the As he's going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile and meet him. And take in your hand the staff turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent, to me, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Remember, remember uh, when Moses first came to Pharaoh, he said, the Lord says, let my people go. He says, who's the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should obey him? Lord's going to show Pharaoh who he is. That's what part of the process is here. Pharaoh's going to come to understand who God is, and he's got the opportunity to respond or not. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water, uh, from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff 
And stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Get this. Even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. See, we read this and we think, oh, well, you know, it's some sort of algae bloom. You know, there's kind of been that going on here. I don't know if you've heard about that. I was down, I was down at the breakwater over here and the waves were rolling in orange. And I thought, oh, man, that looks disgusting. Glad we're not swimming this time of year. Say, so, oh, well, it's just an algae bloom in the Nile. No, it's not. Look at every water that was sourced from the Nile turned to blood. Even the, the water that they already had in jars and pitchers in their home. If they took it from the Nile, when the staff was stretched out, it all turned to blood. Their ponds, their canals, uh, whatever. And this is the first of nine plagues that are going to come upon Egypt that we're going to see in the next couple weeks. Followed by the 10th one, the Passover, which was the death of the firstborn. In these plagues, God is not only speaking to Egypt, but he is also speaking to Israel. And, you know, where the Egyptians are facing the judgments of, of God, uh, over in the land of Egypt, this small little area of, or, sorry, the land of Goshen, this small little area of, of Egypt where the Israelites were, we're going to see that life was totally normal. They were not experiencing these same things. God, God had just put his hand over them and was protecting them while all around them, all of these realities were going on for the Egyptians. And what it is, is God is working. He's going to bring judgment against the gods of Egypt. Like I said, Egypt was polytheistic. They worship creation rather than the creator who is to be praised. They deified everything. They deified the Nile River. In fact, as I was reading being Paul, uh, in, in my studies, I found at least four major gods that they associated with the deification of the Nile River. Uh, they considered the Nile River even to be uh, the blood flow of Ra, the sun god. And so they worshipped it. Um, They worshiped the Nile River, but for the Israelites, the Nile River, I mean, you think about what the Nile River represented for the Israelites. We saw that. What did it represent? Death. Because Pharaoh had commanded that every male child born in an Israelite home be taken and thrown into the river and, and die because their population was uh, growing at such a rapid rate and, rate and he wanted to control them. Um, you know, you think about it. In fact, Moses should have been dead in the river. But he's there with Aaron and they stretch out their hand, stretch out the staff over that river and the roles are reversed, so to speak. That which was life for, for Egypt becomes death. The river becomes blood. And, you know, I guess, I guess as we recount this story, I cannot overemphasize enough the worship that the Egyptians placed upon the, the Nile River. They worshipped water. And, you know, I, I read this and I think, well, it's kind of in a sense like God is saying, you think life is in water. Life is in the blood, as the Bible tells us. We're purchased with blood. Uh, your life is in the blood of Jesus. And, 
With each of these plagues, God is bringing judgment upon the the gods of Egypt, judgment upon the things that Egypt worshipped. And we think, wow, that's crazy. What a a bunch of wackos. They worshipped a river. They worshipped water. What a bunch of, what, what a crazy culture they were. And I think, yeah, right, are you kidding? Have you not looked around at the culture that we live in? Our culture deifies water. Our culture has deified water and is bowing down to worship it. Oh, the aquifer. I'm so afraid. If we don't bring our offerings to the aquifer, we're not going to have water. It's idolatry. You know where water comes from? Heaven. We don't bow down and say, aquifer, save me. We say, thank you, Jesus, for providing rain. Thank you that, that the rain is like your word. It comes from you and to you it returns and you create the cycle. You look after the cycle. You take care of us. You provide for us. And you know, there's many people who in extreme concern for water p- preservation, it's like, it's just a mask, guys. It's just a mask of their own fears and it's a mask of uh, their own idolatrous worship of Water, it's the worship of creation rather than the worship of the creator who's to be praised. And the reason why you know that is because the fruit exposes the root. And the fruit of that whole thing is fear, man. Fear, 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 fear. It's because it's rooted in idolatry. And I think that it's good that we should be all about water conservation and management. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Okay? But as it comes down from heaven, there's no meter on it from God. Oh, the meter's ticking. Ah. No, come on, man. Seriously? The rain comes from God. He, he provides it, and we should be good stewards of that which he has provided, and we should lift our eyes to heaven, and we should thank God for that which he has provided for us. And the Bible says that when he stops sending the rain, and when drought comes on the land, it's because the people need to repent. The people need to get on their knees and cry out and turn from their sin and turn in prayer to the Lord. And he says, I'll send the rain again. See, it's God who controls such things. Rain comes from heaven. And God gives us water. But you know what the Bible says? You know what Jesus said? I'll give you something better than water. I'll give you living water. Jesus said, you come to me, you'll never thirst. You will never thirst if you come to me. Hey, you come to me, I'll give you living water and out of you will flow rivers of living water that will spring up into you to be a stream of eternal life. My friends, it's God who gives the water and we worship him for his provision to us. And so as God brought judgment upon the water-worshipping Egyptians, any water that had been sourced in the Nile, anything that had come from the Nile, even a pitcher or a jar that was in their homes, was turned to blood. Now check it out. Moses, verse 20. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish died. The fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. This is not an algae bloom. This is blood, man. It's blood. Bloody mess. Now, you know, 
It appears as you read this story that only the water associated with the Nile River that was sourced in the Nile River was turned to blood. So you got to just imagine the people are thirsty. The people of Egypt are very thirsty. But there are still some limited resources of water from which they could get water to drink. But then Pharaoh calls in his sorcerers again and check out what happens. Verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret acts. Here we go again. True power encounter. Good and evil. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not even take this to heart. See, that's an unrepentant heart, man. He's not a good guy looking to turn to the Lord. He is turning from God. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So this is crazy. There is limited resources. God has brought judgment on the water. There, and there is limited sources of water. And so what do Pharaoh's sorcerers do? They come in and they save the day, right? No, they don't. Do they heal the water? No. They didn't have the power to do that. Or, you know, instead, what do they do? They, they find perfectly good water that the people could drink. And they wreck that one, too. Do you get the picture? That, that is the work of Satan. That is the work of the devil. Rather than bring healing for the people, he compounds the problem of the people. And for seven full days, the land of Egypt was a, a bloody mess. You know, the Bible teaches that there is a period coming upon the earth where seven years. Book of Revelation. It, it's going to be a bloody mess. You know, think about Moses as we wrap up here. Moses is considered in the Bible the lawgiver. He met God at Mount Sinai. He gave us the law. And he's the man who turned water into blood. Jesus in the Bible is the life giver. Moses the lawgiver. Jesus the life giver. You remember what Jesus did with water? He turned it into something. Into wine. Into wine. See, the law that Moses brought is like a like a schoolmaster that just teaches us that all of our best efforts at religion, all of our best efforts at spirituality produce nothing more than, than death, the death of your peace, the death of your hope, the death of freedom. But when we realize that, that all of those games and all of these things that we attempt and try just aren't working, and we come to Jesus and he saves us from sin and death as we place our faith in him. He brings life, the life giver Jesus. And in him, man, we drink. He fills us with living water. He takes the water and he turns it into the wine of great joy. He blesses us. See, uh, the work of Jesus is the same as the work of Yahweh. You know, uh, it's that seven-fold work. Salvation, liberation, redemption, adoption, revelation, direction, and provision. I don't know where you're going for your water today, but I know where you can find living water. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite Marcus to come.